Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You're listening to The Sound of London. This is Londonist Out Loud. I'm Anne Quentin Wolfe, and congratulations, London. We have a new mayor. Well, not that new. In fact, a week old already. Has the housing crisis been fixed yet? What's the hold-up? Seriously, Cecil B. DeMille couldn't contrive a more spectacular problem. If Sadiq Khan hasn't already made some serious inroads into this issue, then he is moving too slowly. But I hope he's going to do it. And congratulations to him, of course, on getting the job. I hope he's going to be a great mayor. Uh, commiserations, meanwhile, to all those mayoral candidates who weren't either Sadiq Khan or Zach Goldsmith. I think if I looked across all the media and added up the total words spent telling us that Zach Goldsmith's father was rich and Sadiq Khan's wasn't, that word count would exceed the total coverage for all the other candidates. Did you have that feeling in the polling booth as well when you saw other names there? <laughs> when you, you went down, oh, the Lib Dems. Anyway, I think it's a particular accomplishment of, of us, actually, of London. At a time like this, when there's so much fear-mongering going on, fear-mongering both to try to cow non-Islamist viewpoints into submission and also fear-mongering to sell newspapers. The fact that London has been able to look beyond all of that and vote in somebody without really seeing their religion, without, I think, allowing that to be the deciding factor, is something of which I think we as an electorate can be extremely proud. Anyway, enough about the election. That is done and dusted. We have far more important things to worry about. What we're about to do on this week's show should not be tried at home. You're about to hear two adults look for about 45 minutes at a pile of salt without really talking about salt. This is best left to the professionals. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sounds. You ain't never seen the light before, just a strong throw from your front door. to be here today. I don't know what it is, it's just a light drizzle and it seems to make everything way a lot more and I'm glad to be tucked away inside but we're going to be talking about the elements and the name of the gallery here is Elements Gallery. We're in the East End, we're off the Lower Clapton Road in the courtyard of a very controversially pronounced Lubomirov and Angus Hughes and Rebecca Fine is my guest and she's the curator of a work by Philip Hall Patch and this is all about salt. 
Hi, Rebecca. Hi. <laughs> Can we just take five minutes to sit down and get the water out of our clothes? Yes, yes, that's a very good idea. So, yeah, here we are. And it's a perfect day for it because Elements Gallery is um, a space where an artist can come and have their work here for three months. It's inspired by the seasons. And our inaugural artist is Philip Hallpatch, who's made a sculpture slash installation piece called Saltfield Number no. 3, which is made out of four kilogram blocks of salt and uh, the idea is that it will dissolve over time and that mother nature gets to be the co-author and that's really what this space is about for us and that's why he's here for the spring season and then we'll have an artist who's in for the summer autumn and winter and we're actually sitting in the bottom looking out at the lovely french windows on this typical london rainy day witnessing the pollution that's being registered as well as nature of the wind and the rain but the pollution is the thing that's really striking because i was very attracted to invite philip hallpatch to be our inaugural artist because i saw some of his work at the brighton festival house a couple of years ago and he'd made work out of salt there but that was in a gallery context with the kind of the classic thing of the, you know, the walls, the ceiling, whatever. And here it's a chance for his work to really kind of dissolve and develop. And also it illustrates very well what this courtyard space is all about. Well, you've got to come at a piece of art from all sorts of different angles, I think. And I've got my critical eye in. Critical, not necessarily meaning negative, obviously. Maybe we'll approach how the work is working in nature. It seems very strange to call it in nature in this entirely built environment. But it would be remiss of me not to include a word or two of description of the place, which is absolute pandemonium. By your own description, absolute (laughs) pandemonium. It's a delightful chaos going on here. Yes, well, um, we're kind of seated at the back part. I mean, the courtyard is a very organised kind of space. The courtyard is by far the most organised element of all of this. Yes, so because it's a rainy day, we've actually had to come indoors and say we're in the unseen part of La Broma Fangus Hughes. So we're surrounded by the sort of backstage, if you like, area of um, all the art that you wouldn't see, the inner workings of an art gallery. And I think it's quite delightful. And we were both saying that we feel quite at home with this kind of thing there's all kinds of stuff there's artwork there's walls there's paint there's sandbags there's ladders there's everything going on on but we're sitting here and we're looking out at saltfield number three which i must just make one point on behalf of the artist the work the idea of this is that when people come to the gallery which is the bromofangus hughes gallery and they see the Elements Gallery courtyard, the sculptural courtyard, is that it's, the idea is the piece has been built to be viewed from up above, the deck up above. Oh, right. So there's kind of, you know, that's one of the kind of main viewing. Um, so it's been built for that that purpose. So it's in a kind of sort of triangular shape, which is now kind of dissolving and mirroring its own chaos in a way. So the idea is that people come and every time they come to the gallery and they view the courtyard space, the sculpture will be different at every single viewing. And because we're in springtime and the weather's changing, this was incredibly pristine. The artist's background is in architecture, so these white, pristine salt bricks that were placed as part of his salt field number three were very, very striking. And now it's getting to show the dirt and, you know, it's starting to sort of crumble in on itself. And and that's very imposing from the upstairs viewing platform. And the idea is when we have late opening nights, we have one on June the 3rd, and then we have a later one on the last day, which is June the 26th. So people will be able to see from upstairs. And also I bring people down into the courtyard where they can kind of hang out and have a nice time. 
time. We've got bamboo, we've got planters here, we've got done our own version of a kind of dry Cornish dry stone wall as well. So on the opening night, it was great fun, and, and people were sort of staying for a long time, and the artist was here to talk about his work as well. So that's the idea that it will the work will always be viewed mainly from the upstairs gallery. So it's been here for how long? It was launched on April the 8th, just in time mm. for the rainy season, for April showers. So we've got brick, is the word you use, and that's about right in terms of the size of each of these blocks. They remind me very much of the... Superman film, you know, that 1970s Superman film with Christopher Reeve. He goes off uh, somewhere in the Arctic, I think, to uh, get a message from his father, Jarrell. Oh, okay. And I think we've got a bit of that vibe going on here. <laughs> and they're, they're formed more or less into a, a triangle. And as you say, the tops of them have dipped now, probably under the, the dissolving of the rain. And some of the blocks on the corners have fallen down. But the most striking thing, the ugliest thing probably about it, is the horrible pollution that we can see creeping up from the bottom the bottom of these formerly white salt bricks are almost black and then the dirt climbs up them until we've got a sort of a dirty white at the top how do you feel about that yeah no i think it's i think it's fascinating and i'm quite shocked how much how much of that is shown and someone was Mm. saying to me the other day if you kind of take a a sample of a londoner's lungs it will be like black sticky marmite inside which is a horrible thought but obviously we're in a really polluted part i wish you hadn't called it a black (laughs) sticky marmite that's made it all so much worse (laughs) so it's it's kind of or maybe kind of tar i don't know but that is quite that is quite shocking that it's registering i mean we knew it would register the weather and i think they're lasting incredibly well considering because they're uh, industrially manufactured so they're they're kind of compressed the salt is compressed each one weighs four kilograms so Mm. in front of us uh is 1.5 tons of salt which is incredible in itself but i think it's really interesting it was one of the things that we talked about when i was discussing it with the artists we talked about how nature was going to be co-authoring and we knew it was going to register kind of climatic changes but the fact that it's actually showing the london pollution so graphically in this kind of way is is quite shocking i think the whole thing is an experiment well that's yes and you must have had some sort of idea of what you thought it was going to do over the course of that time i wonder how far away from your expectation this is well well, because the idea of Elements Gallery Space is I'm inviting artists to actually experiment during that time that they're here, that their work is resident here for that for that season. And so I want it to register some kind of change. And it's the idea that it's the antithesis of the kind of normal way that we view sculpture, you know, public sculpture, you know, equestrian statues of some colonel on horseback that's going to be there for 200 years. This is the opposite of that. And I think it's more reflective of, of where we are in London and East London that... It's going to be showing change. And while I'm talking, I can see this. The sun is actually coming out. So at a very advanced stage, it does crystallise more. But that's not happened yet. It's more kind of malformed, kind of sort of sugar lumps in that kind of way. But people get very physical with it. So people want to touch them and hold them as well. And I think some people have uh, moved them around was, as well. Yeah, no, that always intrigues me with those open gallery pieces like this, where it, it sort of encourages interactivity, whether after interaction has taken place, it, it's clearly not laid out the way the artist originally laid it out. Is it still the same piece of art? It's still, I think, uh, well, there's kind of two aspects of that. One, this is still very much the formation in the kind of mind's eye of the artist, Philip Hall patch but and it's still kept within that but there obviously 
some people have moved stuff around and I think you know this being London foxes urban foxes have come in and um, uh, done their and contributed to the artwork as well um, in, what but, way, kind of, in, what, in what way have they contributed to the dare I ask well, kind of sort of, I think they're kind of sort of flicking stuff on it as well and you get bits of twigs and things and it also encourages wildlife as well because the thing about salt which also comes from salt licks which you know farmers will know they'll, they'll put them out for cows and dogs and we had dogs that visited on the opening night and of course they love it you know because they want to lick the stuff so um but on the on the wider question of that kind of that, that's kind of you know that old hoary chestnut that's all that but is it art and we were talking about marcel duchamp his urinal launching conceptual art and the the debate still continues even now but i think it's more about art and the role of art for me anyway i can't speak for the artist in this but f- for me as a curator i'm also practicing artists and i see those things running together not separate from each other because this is a very much you know transforming an urban space and a lot of my artwork is about that and that's really important to me but i think it's about setting questions and making people think and there's so many you know you could have a graph of pollution in hackney or you could show this and this is very striking so you could bring someone from whatever educational level or background or age or knowledge and show them this and they would understand what's going on and I think you know there's things like the Wellcome Trust that do a fantastic job of illustrating questions about kind of science life um, urbanism architecture whatever and art being used in that way and I think the idea that art is always a sort of neat narrative with a beginning middle and an end that's just not true so even great works of art are constantly that are considered finished paintings are constantly reinterpreted so something as iconic as the Mona Lisa has been reinterpreted every hundred years into what its meaning is and who she is so I think it's a kind of kind of null and void kind of question in a way if I cheekily <laughs> say that because it's because it's, it's kind of missing the whole point and it's downgrading it to me this is something that anybody can understand and it literally illustrates it physically well like, yes and no I mean we've got we've got our sleeves rolled up here and I wouldn't let anybody else <laughs> off an awkward question I guess it's two questions that yep, need sure. to go hand in hand yeah. one is to what degree uh, you need to reverse engineer the questions according to how the thing evolves in a situation like that and the other is the degree to which the questions need to be asked for the audience I suppose not all of the audience mm. by any means but it might not be obvious to somebody looking at these blocks of salt that these particular questions should be asked and therefore they you know i'm wondering the degree to which you need to hold their hand as curator (laughs) well i suppose there's a bit there's a bit of both so i'm kind of in agreement with you up to a point in that like anything in the world it's it's kind of based on language and how you find out you know if you want to learn about algebra then you you look at how algebra works and and art is another kind of language it's in terms of an art form it, it i think it can be over intellectualized because you can enter it you can enter into this piece of work at lots of different levels so the artist is actually currently doing an ma in aesthetics of representation of, of sculpture and so that's at a completely different level but you could take um, someone who's from the local pensioners club or a five-year-old from the infant school and i could sit down with them and explain about this piece of work and ask them questions and what what they feel about but what i think is entirely obvious because it's exposed where it's supposed the elements says there's no roof when people come into the courtyard space they realize this is london that is making these marks on the work now how they choose to interpret that 
might be up to them. But to me, that's a very obvious thing. So I think it can operate on all those different levels. So you can hold someone's hand up to a point, but I suppose I don't like necessarily the idea of holding someone's hand. It's more showing a pathway, if someone wants to take that, of the different questions that can be asked, how deep do they want to go into it, and also to look at the language to understand it as a piece of art. I suppose the difference... I mean, I'm a I'm a fine artist and a curator, um, but I think if I could have been any type of artist, I would have been a musician because music is something... I've got all kinds of music with people singing in different languages, which I don't know, but I can still get the mood. If I hear a, a sad piece of Chinese music, it doesn't have that. And with art, that can sometimes work, but not always. And, and I think people are disingenuous when they try to say, you know, it's totally open, it's totally accessible. There is a thought process that goes into it in the same way picking up a book and understanding, you know, if you're picking up a, a book, I wasn't, you know, I was educated at a comprehensive school. We didn't do Greek mythology. If I want to read Aristophanes or whatever, I need a kind of guide. I need a key guide. That doesn't mean I'm not going to enjoy it or get a great deal out of it, but I need a key guide to take me through that because I haven't been exposed to that in my educational upbringing well more, more than that you'd, you'd benefit from being educated in that <laughs> in that area in order to speak the speak the language know the vocabulary yes, understand some exactly. of the symbols yeah exactly and i think art is exactly the same and if you go to any of the you know the major museums in london you know the national gallery or whatever they have talks that they do where they interpret works and they bring them to life for people so in terms of the symbolism and that applies just as much to beautiful religious works that we might see and go oh that's the madonna but why is she always wearing blue that's because blue was the most expensive the kind of lapis lazuli was the most expensive color that an artist could use so it was seen as the most kind of holy it was even more expensive than gold so once you can unpack all those symbols you can increase your enjoyment of that work you might it might not float your boat paintings of madonnas necessarily but we've got a martin creed lighting effect going on in the cellar here as well just to add to it well i think that's over interpretation (laughs) (laughs) so so i think yeah it can increase your enjoyment of it to understand all the symbols and whatever and help you get into it and in the end it still comes down to your personal taste what you know do you really like the color red do you are you do you really like kind of oriental art do you really like really purest stuff do you like stuff that uses flowers or nature and they're all completely legitimate but it's more about widening our palette i suppose widening our understanding like reading lots of different types of great literature and how well things are being translated actually on that subject of accessibility i think there's uh, something i want to ask you that involves uh, heading down the lift shaft but we'll come back to that in just a second we're going to take a very quick word from our sponsor this episode of londonist out loud is brought to you by squarespace whether you need a landing page a beautiful gallery a professional blog or an online store it's all included with your squarespace website and actually we decided to put squarespace through its paces we're very proud of the london blog we run but we thought what the hell let's try putting another one together in super quick time so we got on the case using Squarespace. It's very easy indeed. There were some beautiful templates to work with. The customer support was second to none. And within just one hour, we'd made a fantastic looking blog all about Peckham. Take a look at our post on the subject, see what you think. Squarespace could not be simpler to use. And because you listen to this show, there's a freebie here for you. You can start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter offer code LONDONIST to get 10% off your first purchase. 
You're listening to London Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolfer at Elements Gallery. Rebecca Finer is my guest. Um, we're looking at a lot of salt by Philip Hall Patch. Salt field number three. That's correct. And we're talking about accessibility of art. And I suppose we're on the edge of public art. But I know that you're a champion of accessible art, mm. which is a loaded word, if ever there was one. But I was looking back over your resume and some of the work that you've been doing, for example, is in a church belfry, down a lift shaft, yes. in, in a bank vault the last thing that sounds is accessible these are places known for not being accessible well I, I, th- I think it's more more accurate to say probably not very commercial but accessible in actually what happens because I'm not a great fan of the kind of white cube gallery space because there's a great deal of etiquette and expectation that's around that and so I'm always interested in basically putting art in different spaces and um, like you, you've listed some of them a bank vault uh, a, a lift shaft a ch- and what happens is when the public come to those spaces and it's also quite frightening for you as the artist because I kind of tend to stalk and, 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 and hang around and get their reaction and engage them in conversation is that they will basically really tell you what they think but because it's taken out of that white cube space and all that etiquette of the kind of wine and the private view although that will happen at, at the launch time but afterwards they feel very empowered to tell you what they think to ask you questions because they don't feel stupid because it's unexpected they were unexpectedly finding a film in a church belfry for the um, olympics at st john on bethnal green who i've done a lot of work with they're lovely people i did a kind of secular response to the wailing wall for the olympic site and it was over eight thousand five hundred coloured scrolls by eastenders that was put in the railings by bethnal green tube station and that was the most fantastic thing and people came back again and again and it engaged people in conversations young old every shape size color that you can imagine because they felt empowered they didn't feel like they were being stupid to ask that question or to say what they liked or what they didn't like and to give you the reasons why so that's a huge reason why I'm attracted to those kind of spaces because it's unexpected and therefore they feel somehow liberated. When you have a, a private view, I mean, people who aren't involved in the art world, these things have just, there's no reason why it should be that way, but it's just evolved. So you have the white cube space and there's the private view and there's lots of chinking of glasses of wine and there's an expected etiquette. Well, I'm sorry, we're in Clapton, we're in Hackney, a lot of in the surrounding community, they would come to that door and then run away, you know, if you're not used to that kind of thing. It doesn't seem like it's it's not for you, it's not about you, everyone seems to know each other. It's very intimidating. And I suppose there's a lot of etiquette around those white cube spaces and just how it happens naturally. It's not that anyone's trying to be exclusive even. It just happens in that kind of way. The you, same- you, when you refer to the – sorry to interrupt. When you yeah. mention the white cube, though, you're referring to it as emblematic of a, a, yes, cu- of a yes, culture, not that yes. specific gallery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, I don't, I don't know Jay Joplin. I've never met him. So, <laughs> so I'm not talking about um, – I mean the, the kind of generic gallery space that we all recognise, we all know what it is, et cetera, et cetera. But that whole thing in the art scene of what's expected and how you're supposed to behave and whether you're supposed to have knowledge about the artwork or whatever, um, to someone who's outside that, that just seems completely intimidating to them. And there is a lot of etiquette of how you're supposed to conduct yourself within those spaces, which are unwritten rules. And if you're not from that background, that's very difficult for people to navigate. Now, if it's in a church belfry or if it's in a lift shaft or if it's, it's just so unexpected. I've done stuff in graveyards and 
things like that, people are, they come with an open mind as well. You know, the hoary old chestnut we were talking about, you know, is it odd? Um, doesn't really enter their mind. They come completely open. But if it's in a gallery context, a traditional gallery context, then quite often things get kind of enclosed and imprisoned, whether it's within a frame, literally, or within the space. And then they feel they have to act in a certain way, or should I know about this, rather than just feeling comfortable to go, well, I really love that, but I don't know why. So, so having, come in, having come up from a fine art background, I'm wondering how you came around to that line of thought, because it would seem a path of least resistance to be going down exactly the route you're describing. Well, I'm not from a fine art background, that's probably why. I'm, oh. I'm kind of DIY, I'm self-declared. <laughs> oh, DIY fine art, I love that as a concept. <laughs> Unilateral uh, declaration of independence, that's what I say. So, um, Yes, this, I've got to say this place has a bit of the B&Q about it. <laughs> well, we are in the cellars, so um, upstairs is a beautiful um, traditional gallery space and the Elements Gallery, the courtyard, is what I was attracted to and the um, co-directors of Le Brum of Angus Hughes were so open-minded when when I came to them and said, oh, my God, you've got this fantastic space outside, you know, please let me, you know, when I approached them with the idea, saying, yes, I know it doesn't have a roof, but why can't that be a gallery space? Because in London, space is such a premium. And getting hold of it, to be able to experiment and do stuff, and they've just been incredibly supportive, just like, if you can make it happen, go for it and knock yourself out, which is why it's here today. We nearly did a word picture of the place earlier on, and it's unusual to leave it this late, but I think it warrants it. Um, the courtyard we're looking into through triple-paned patio-style doors. We've got the work that we were describing. It's about eight or ten feet in width, about the same backwards, and it's a triangle. It's just over ankle height, bricks on their ends. Beyond that, we've got the fenced courtyard. There are some mirrors, there are some plants and grasses. Uh, Round the corner is a room where a a chap uh, stripped to the waist was eating a bowl of porridge as I passed by. It's a a little car park. Um, Sorry, I missed that. (laughs) You might still catch him, I don't know. (laughs) You don't know who he is then? No, I don't Uh, know who the porridge eater is. Well, there's an added attraction now, not just the salt, but the porridge guy. I'm going to put that on the next flyer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Down here, we've got, well, this, it looks like a woodwork shop, and pretty much is. There are frames that have been chopped into sections, there are angle grinders and rotary saws. A bit of a tree trunk there. So there is. <laughs> the building itself, though, this is East End artist space all over, really. Lots of brickwork, lots of wood beams, a few girders, but the place is in splendid decline. Uh, yes, but I do. I must make absolutely I mean, the, clear the, the separation the, between... We have come into the kind of inners of the gallery building, so this is the side that, you know, you're getting a special sneaky peek in this. Um, well, I, I love this we're, bit. We're kind of, yeah, we're the kind of backstage. <laughs> where upstairs there's a beautiful, white, pristine gallery where work has been traditionally hung and all the rest of it so I need to put that so when when visitors come to the gallery space they won't actually come down here we're, we're kind of in the inners we are kind of sort of backstage um, which like you say is really interesting because you see the the inner workings it's like taking an old radio apart and, and seeing how it all fits together so yes it's exactly like that yes I'm, I'm particularly impressed by this doorway which essentially looks as though it was made by a rhino being propelled through it at velocity <laughs> I don't know what the story is that uh, related to that, but perhaps we could make one up. Historically, this used to be the electricity company used to run it historically. And according to the Hackney archives, I think the suffragettes used to meet here as well. And then William Angus Hughes took it over and set it up as this 
beautiful gallery space, which is upstairs, not the inner. Not well, this. Yes. Not the inners where we're where we're sitting. Not the bit. I think no, you're yeah, slightly exactly. ashamed of. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and I exhibited here before. We- the number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications including botulinum toxins as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mangus Hughes is also a practicing artist as well and a writer. And so he'd been in Den City One, which I did, which was um, part of the London Festival of Architecture last year. Um, and that was the Hackney Wick response to that. Or, um, that was my artistic response because lots of architects and planners were coming into the area and it was like, why aren't the artists doing a response? So it was basically a utopian city made out of the detritus of Hackney Wick, which you know Hackney Wick very well. It's, it's absolutely full of it. And I wanted to illustrate the difference in that what we do as artists you know neighborhood watch they would be complaining saying someone's dumped a load of tires outside where in Hackney Wick someone would say great I'm going to make an installation out of that and so I wanted to kind of share what we do as a kind of living way of recycling repurposing with the very official London Festival of Architecture so that's what we did we had a three-day festival it was on a 1.5 acre site so we had this kind of sort of shanty town of art with the Olympic Stadium in the background which just kind of amused me so it's you know similar kind of thing and then and how this came about was that I came and I saw this wonderful space that was neglected and they did a fantastic job of clearing the space because it was almost like a pyramid of rubble and chairs and things that built up over time. And I said, this could be the most fantastic space. And they've just been really open and letting me run with it and having it as a sort of separate branded space because it's it's running on a different programme. They have a monthly turnaround, as most traditional galleries do with their exhibitions. And this is based on the elements, which is why I called it Elements Gallery, so that um, it changes with the season and is inspired by the seasons and and to invite the artists to actually work with the seasons rather than trying to resist them 
in that kind of way. So that's really how it came about. And also, if you like, it's London's first dedicated space to outdoor art. And although the Serpentine well, does... Yes, that's a very questionable claim. Well, no, no, no one's, no one's taken that crown from me yet. It's uh, The Serpentine have their outdoor thing, but that's part of the Royal Parks. They don't own that space. And it's only done temporarily, which is their summer season when they build their pavilion. Sometimes the City of London also has a festival of sculpture, but again, it only happens at specific times. There's other placements of public art in London, like the Economists Square, where they have public art also. But actually, at the moment, until someone else comes and takes that crown, humble though it is, as a starting point, this is London's first dedicated space to outdoor art, because we things like the Yorkshire Sculpture Park and it's more countryside areas. It doesn't really happen in London. One, because people don't have access to a courtyard because that's just life. And it's very rare for a gallery to have access to this kind of space or to want to utilise it. It would normally be used as kind of storage. So it was literally me coming coming along and I fall in love with spaces like this. It's the type of thing that I love and go, oh, let me do something with this. Let me get my hands on this, see what I can do. So we started it. I'm not from a, a moneyed or property background and lots of people who start galleries are. This was done almost by public subscription and this was started, the initial funding was started with a crowdfunder. So members of the artistic community and other people put in their pennies worth to help make it happen for us to get that little bit of seed funding to kick us off, basically. So that's why we're here now. People wanted to see it happen as well. So that's another thing that's kind of different. And I think that that makes it quite a special space as well. What are the practicalities there of getting the momentum behind a crowdfunding thing like that? That's a huge change in how things are done in the last five, ten years, isn't it? It sounds like it might involve quite a lot of personal salespersonship. well, it's, it's very interesting because the positive side is that it makes you deconstruct exactly what you do. So with the crowdfunders, what they don't kind of publicise is that, you know, they charge you on average of 5% to use their platform. And then obviously PayPal charges you a percentage as well. And then for any rewards that you get for people to pledge for, that's an interesting process because obviously you have to buy them or you have to do some kind of deal. So for instance, for Elements Gallery, um, one of the pledges which was quite popular was that I went to an East London brewery Left Bank Brewery Craftdale being a huge thing with microbreweries specifically in East London and one of the things that you could pledge for was 35 quid to get three bespoke ales that were brewed specially for Elements Gallery with labels featuring the design of the artwork on them in a kind of presentation pack and they will literally be collector's editions. It's also because I've got a little bit of a punk rock sense of humour and obviously the Bex Prize is kind of serious doing it and I'm doing it in a very kind of, it's not even cottage industry it's kind of, you know, there's no cottage involved. Um, And so, but that's a whole negotiation and that, that still has to be paid for. The labels have to be printed all of those things have to be paid for so whatever you raise with your crowdfunder the headline figure that's not what you get in your hand because you've had to do all these different negotiations and that was just one thing that came up because I thought you know Craftdale that's such a huge thing in East London quite a few people went for it so that's an interesting thing so you end up going to meet breweries and all the rest of it Um, another one was a fine dining experience with an Italian chef in their home that they could pay for so obviously you've got to cover all the the costs of that so it's it's a strange beast it was really interesting to do it it was utterly exhausting because it's a 24 seven platform so you have no rest whatsoever I don't know that I would do it again I think most people do it when they have a sort of a committee of people you know if they're 
you know but literally I was all over it having to do everything the social media the the writing of it the promotions the rewards and it's still ongoing now oh the other thing that we did that was a little bit crazy was that our campaign closed on the kind of Easter and Easter came very early this year and then we opened on the 8th of April. So there was like a kind of a week in between, which was completely crazy. Sometimes people leave it sort of two months. They get the money in, they spend two months and they put it together. But I wanted a really quick turnaround also so people could see what, they, what they'd helped create. And I thought that was really important. And now I'm still going through the process of getting the rewards to different people at different times. And that is a, that's a whole rigmarole. So I don't know whether, I, you know, it's an, it was an interesting experience. I don't think I'd do it again as one person kind of curator wearing so many hats because it just dilutes all the different things that you're good at because you haven't to spread yourself very thinning it's quite exhausting and like I said time wise labor wise it's still going on now I'm still having to distribute all this stuff and have meetings with people to to make all this stuff happen but yes it is a new way of it's another place that artists can go and try and make their work happen it's a different way instead of going through the arts council and I guess in that way it's very very free because you say what you want to do and why you want to do it and obviously it has to be something that people socially engage with because there is stuff there where people just want money to um seems like for themselves to be paid to go on a photography holiday around vietnam or whatever so that this is for other people it wasn't for me not even directly for the artist as well so i think that kind of captured people's imagination so that's my advice if someone's trying to do crowdfunding to actually think about the social purposes of what they're doing otherwise unless you've got very rich family which i don't then that they're going to back you to do whatever your artistic adventure might be but if you want to engage strangers people that you don't know then you've you've got to have something else that would be my top tip for it and forget about sleep for six weeks (laughs) well Well, another aspect of your life and i wonder how all this has impacted on it is your art Ah, yeah. Well, I suppose in for the moment, I've decided to kind of sort of very much fuse the two together because I've always been, uh, <clears throat> even the word curator, I'm not sure that I really like that. It's just that people understand what that is because I think I'm a kind of cultural producer as much as a curator. I don't just kind of point at things and say that would look pretty there. I get much more involved than that and I'm much more collaborative and will be work we've got the rest of the program for 2016 and I'm going to be much more working much more collaboratively with the artists actually supporting them as more a kind of sort of cultural producer in a way to actually make things happen I prefer the word kind of cultural catalyst actually rather than curator because people now you know they curate their Facebook page they curate their playlist they curate it's a kind of word that's along with the word affordable in London or luxury is also become slightly um, meaningless yeah you're pressing my buttons there <laughs> but it's true a friend of mine came to stay with me you hadn't been in London for, for many years and I said you need to know in the lexicon of London there's a couple of words that don't mean anything the word luxury you know when I was growing up actually meant luxury something palatial something beautiful whatever but now it doesn't now it can be like a garage with a for sale sign on and um and the word affordable as in terms of kind of housing or or studios or anything you know 80% of market rate and the market we all know is a kind of wild beast and so that word doesn't really mean anything outside London I know it's a completely different story but in London which is kind of crazy hothouse of that stuff it doesn't mean anything and and so the word curator as well I use that because people understand what it is so it's a kind of shorthand but if someone's actually 
speaking to me for more than one sentence, I would say creative catalyst, making things happen. I prefer that. So. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure about that one. <laughs> but just by the way, in, entirely in parenthesis, I was looking at a property website the other day just to... Uh, be, because just for amusement. <laughs> just for amusement, yes. Uh, really to uh, press my nose against the shop window from the outside. And I discovered uh, that £50,000 buys you, not too far away from London, a field that definitely won't get planning permission, or a garage. Right. Well, yeah, there you go, see. A garage. Yeah. I mean, it's just crazy. It's complete, And, it's, and it, it, it becomes harder and harder. And that's why I see, when you asked me about my art, and I meandered slightly, it's my Irish roots coming out there with storytelling. But going back to the art, I see the two as absolutely fused together because um, in terms of my art and what I do and what I'm interested in doing and going to interest in unusual spaces or spaces that you wouldn't normally see art, and getting access, you know, a little tear in the fabric of time, which means that you can get access to, you know, like a 1.5-acre site by the Olympic Stadium or a warehouse in Hackneywick to make something happen. But it does become quite exhausting because you go into this whole thing of it's it's temporary. And what's great about this as a platform and that um, Le Bromofangus Hughes have been so supportive is that this has a kind of permanence about it. So it's something that can be built on because artists are forever nomadic which is not necessarily a bad thing but it's also very tiring because you don't get to build on anything you don't get to create something that's properly sustainable well that's the the artist themselves who is that thing that's being built up is it not how do you mean well you put you your exhibits themselves might be temporary or transient or nomadic but they cumulatively add to the reputation of the artist yes i I suppose so but if i'm talking about art spaces where you'll get a load of artists together to try and make something happen there's an enormous amount of energy and time and labor that goes into that and commitment and passion and then that might only be for a very you know because there's been lots of pop-up you know you've got pop-up shops everywhere and it's a similar kind of thing and and you've got you know pop-up art galleries as well an enormous amount of time and energy gained something that might only be there for a weekend um and it's, that's it's it's difficult for us to ignore what's going on outside <laughs> yeah yes yeah well it looks like we've got excitement that sounds like fire and police i presume that's sadiq khan going off to do something about the housing shortage <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah possibly yes to, to kind of put some foam on some um, estate agents fees where they ch- want to charge you 200 quid for checking your reference by email nice work if you can get it yes absolutely well actually i wanted to ask you about that because it's with the skill set you've got and i I often think this when i'm interviewing somebody in the arts who's i don't know how many people have got the same sort of profile as you but somebody who's had to go through the this construction of businesses the the selling of an idea the taking of opportunities and and generating something and getting it to stand on its Mm. feet it often seems to me that art is really uh, commercially and, and financially uh, not the horse to bet on and I, I wonder whether it's ever crossed your mind to take the skills that you've got and apply them to something that makes a bit more money <laughs> well, I suppose yeah, yeah I would like to eat a bit more regular yeah mm. or ever you know. uh, yeah 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 or ever yeah yeah I must be looking very thin today yeah but um well I suppose I suppose in the kind of art thing it's that thing of kind of following your passion doing what you love and and all the other kind of sacrifices that you make along the way but I suppose the question that you've posed is very interesting it's more from a kind of wider perspective is that why aren't those skills 
more recognised because it's incredibly entrepreneurial, working with volunteers and motivating people quite often for free because you can't pay them wages and how to make things fun, how to get people engaged. And, and yes, you're right, I suppose those are all skills that people corporatise in terms of kind of leadership or bringing groups together and get people teamwork, all these different types of things, publicity. Um, but it doesn't really it doesn't really get recognised. And there's that classic thing going back to the, your comment about the estate agent and the the filled for 50 grand or or a garage in that it's such a strange thing because commercially estate agents recognize that having a whole bunch of artists artists and artist activity in an area earlier we're talking about Hackney Wick actually makes it cool increases the kudos they're going to make things happen they're going to see detritus and paint it fantastic colors they're going to plant things they recognize the value of that but it's very difficult to get you know municipal authorities to recognize the value of that or other kind of institutions or or grant giving bodies to actually realize that creativity is a kind of messy kind of thing but yeah the estate agents recognize and and literally monetize the value of that they will actually advertise saying oh creative community artists does does because they know what that is that's actual physical environmental and cultural improvements whether someone trying to start a tiny little coffee bar or they they've painted a wall with some fantastic mural and they they recognize it and they quantify it and they they turn it into pounds shillings and pence and it's just getting other people to recognize it that's the difficult thing i don't really know why that doesn't happen I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, really. I don't know the answer to that. But um, it's a it's a kind of mystery why those skills aren't recognised. But I think the nature of being an artist is that you are, you know, again, for me, I am much better at selling somebody else's work and promoting somebody else's work rather than your own thing. It's quite difficult. And I think artists tend to be not necessarily so articulate about talking about their own work that's quite a difficult thing because the you know the reason why you're making work is because you want to explain something visually not verbally i mean unless you're a playwright or something like that so. oh, even then yes, yes well that's that's true that's true and i think that's the kind of that's the nature of it if you could do it a different way then you would do it a different way and that's why you're in in that field of of creating whether it's objects or beautiful things for people to look at or listen to because that's your way of communicating you know heartbreak or loneliness or love or a statement on what's happening with Syrian refugees that's that's what you're going to do if you're a songwriter and write a song about it It might touch more people than writing a kind of sort of annual report on it as well but for some reason it doesn't get quantified in that way I don't I don't really know I don't really know the answer to that mystery (laughs) Clearly, as we and we're, we're coming, unfortunately, it's towards the end of our time here. I've got two questions up the spout. One of them is that it's obvious that it's easier to get hold of a piece of art if there are ideas attendant to it that are sort of re- recognisable, flaggable, upable. But I wonder, through the work of others that you're putting on and planning to put on, and indeed through your own work, aside from the themes, the ideas, the concepts, I wonder if there's a mood that the music there tends to have. Oh, in my own work? Yeah. Oh, OK. Well, I suppose... Or in the, in the artistic choices you uh, make. OK, well, I guess there's two types of work that I make. There's a very... Um, stuff that's very um i consider quite kind of personal to me which looks at i suppose the the institution of the family from a very political kind of way because you know and and how we deal with that and 
and all those features that go with that in terms of it, the family as an institution actually being politically very interesting, sociologically, and also quite a dangerous place as well for women in particular at any age. And at the same time, that's a very revered institution. We're always getting it fed to us. That's fine. And also is a way that even if you're not from a family that you kind of arrange life anyway I think you were talking about warehouse living before and those are types of informal families so I'm very fascinated by that and my work will involve installation or text or it might involve film and that's very personal stuff that I look at and then there's the other side of stuff where I do give it away or it involves a lot of social engagement and I hope humour as well and that the audience will actually contribute whether it's using luggage tags or like the piece that I said the the secular response to the Wailing Wall where 8,500 EastEnders and visitors to London filled this huge vast scape and made this fantastic rainbow of colour of all their kind of prayers and wishes and and thoughts and and although I started off the pattern they contributed and made it into something that I didn't know what it was going to be so there's kind of two extremes there's a very kind of private thoughtful stuff and then there's the very outward bit more extrovert stuff that involves a lot more public engagement and one is a much more controlled side and the other one is a complete rip letting go so there's those two dialogues going all the time in what I do in terms of my personal work but I think I I do need to say something that um, how I came to be an artist was that and this is going to trigger another whole thing is that I did a show because I dreamt it I dreamt the whole thing and then because it was dealing with um, childhood sexual abuse in my family two of my brothers came and smashed it up and I had to go to court myself and get an injunction and it was kind of baptism by fire as an artist because I literally had to fight for it and, and I've been involved in arts ever since. So it's quite a strange, strange thing. That was at the um, foundry of the early days. Originally, it was called Family Room in Continuum. And that was smashed up by various members of my family. And then, um, and then afterwards, I got a court injunction to be able to exhibit again. And then it was changed to Speak Out or Consent. So it had kind of kind of strengthened itself um and they're not, they're not big on spotting irony your family by the sense <laughs> well there wasn't it wasn't but the thing was it wasn't it wasn't really about them it was about my survival journey it wasn't really about them but the ego of people who've caused damage to other people is that they always reflect everything back on themselves so that was a kind of you know um yeah very difficult time so it was baptism by fire i think my kind of engagement with the with the art world and then it just kind of continued from there so literally in that way i am very much a self-declared artist in that way so um those that that type of work i do exploring all those issues and stuff to do in my family kind of you know involves all kinds of things you know history uh, uh, the kind of religion refugees all that kind of stuff it's all kind of there um, that's the very kind of private more controlled stuff that's in my work and then the other stuff is this huge kind of opening up public engagement element quite often with a kind of sense of humor as well so those two things are run uh, alongside each other and I think that very much buys into why I'm attracted to quite difficult spaces and I'm all for turning a negative into a positive so other people come to the space well it can't be a gallery it's it doesn't have a roof it doesn't have white walls it doesn't and I'm the kind of opposite of that that immediately attracts me as the kind of challenge to make something happen so I hope that's answered your question I think in spades yeah absolutely (laughs) 
Um, and the, the, my final question, Colombo yes. style, just okay. one more question. Just one more question. Before we flag up exactly how people can come and view the yeah. Superman set here. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> the artist might, might write me threatening letters with that reference. But I think it's kind of cool. I'd say, however you interpret it, I think that's great. <laughs> it's, it, you know, I've actually met them. Met one of the men who made the Superman oh. set. He has. He keeps uh, at his home one of the crystals from the set. Anyway. Oh, I the thought I was going to say he keeps a salt brick. That's <laughs> no, that would be peculiar. <laughs> No, the question was, if we had a time... Well, clearly, if we had a time machine and, and come back uh, 10 years into the future, it's going to be an enormous block of luxury flats. But what would you hope to see right here in, you know, five, 10 years? What's the future? In this very space? Let's say, yes. Well, I don't know. Maybe it would be kind of sort of, you know, franchised out. You know, there's a kind of element... Co- a coffee one, bar. Kind of, no, no, not a coffee bar. <laughs> a successful still, Starbucks franchise. No, 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 no. I think a space that is still exhibiting art. And, you know, this is something that can go to other spaces as well, because I think there are other huge gallery spaces that don't realise they have spaces that are underused, that someone like me could come along and kind of animate. So this know. is a blueprint? Yeah, I think so, yeah. This is a prototype. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yes, and I, and, I, and I don't see why not. And, and also, you know, this is a very um, stable gallery. They have the freehold of the space. There's no reason why it shouldn't continue and grow and just get better and better. It's been here for five years supporting curation and experimental curation. So I can only see it kind of growing rather than the other way, you know. So maybe we'll all go international. Why not? London, New York, Paris. <laughs> I'm inclined to go international, uh, looking at the state of those bricks. I want to get as international as possible immediately. <laughs> by the, just by the way, what's the... Uh, this, I know this is one more question than I said I was going to ask. What's the question you, uh, that you were hoping I wasn't going to ask because it's a rubbish question? Oh. You oh. must have done enough interviews for that to have cropped up. Oh, no, not really. No question's a rubbish question, I don't think. Really? Question in itself is a good thing. That's my answer. <laughs> Well, that just validated my job. Uh, <laughs> always ask why. When in doubt, always ask why. Why? He, well, <laughs> um, we we have to come to a close, and we, well, I had some trouble finding the place, so we we might need to reflect. You need a bigger sign outside, I think. But <laughs> we are just off the Lower Clapton Road. How would people find their way here? Well, it's twenty six Lower Clapton Road, and it's the Le Bromofangus Hughes. They are open from Friday through to Sunday, twelve till six pm every weekend and um, the next Friday late viewing will be on the 3rd of June and then to invite the public to come to the takedown where you can actually own and take away a piece of this um, sculpture on the 26th of June and that will be in the afternoon that we'll be inviting people down and the nearest train station is Hackney Central but there's lots of buses that you know the 106 and various other buses if you look on if you look online you'll find us and also Elements Gallery is on Facebook if you put in Elements Gallery London 1 on Facebook and um, and you'll find us and we're also Elements is on Twitter as well Elements Gallery is on Twitter as well so you can find our information there from Elements Gallery Rebecca Finer thanks very much it's been an absolute and that's all for this week my thanks for this week to rebecca finer thanks to to bernie barkley theme and incidental music was by songs from the howling sea i'm n quentin wolf
front door. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.